Hey y'all, this is Jeannie Faulkner and you are listening to Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting, the podcast. I'm the author of Common Sense Pregnancy, which was published last summer and is available wherever you buy your books. Um, I want to wish everyone a really happy 4th of July. I love this weekend. Summer is my favorite season and... As I've mentioned, oh, I know, too many times now already on this podcast, when the sun comes out, my mood lifts and I'm a happy girl. It's summer in Portland and I am thrilled. But pregnancy in summer, oh my God. For any mamas out there who are pregnant this summer, I wish you a cool breeze, lots of time in a pool, and all the naps you can get. I feel ya. I had my son uh, in late September. He's 20 now, almost 21, um, but I remember it vividly. It was a super hot summer that year, and he was my third baby, and I was carrying low and large from about my fifth month on. And so by the time summer hit, I was a bit of a mess. I guess I guess hot mess. There you go. That works, right? Um, And with a failure of foresight, I had planted a vegetable patch in my backyard that spring. I was really ambitious about it. You know, I was newly pregnant. I felt really great getting my hands in the dirt, planting tomatoes and beans and corn and sunflowers and all kinds of stuff. Um, But it all came right, right at the peak of summer when I was about eight months along. And all of a sudden we had a ton of tomatoes all ripe at the same time. And... I could not stoop and bend and get all those tomatoes out, and I just kind of felt like maybe this summer it's okay if they hung out on the vine. Um, But then one afternoon, when I was not home, some very dear friends went out in the yard, and they picked every last one of those lush, ripe tomatoes, and they left three huge, overflowing shopping bags, paper shopping bags of tomatoes on my porch. (laughs) and it was over 90 degrees and again I was eight months pregnant with a big big boy really huge and as much as I appreciated their generosity and what a lovely gesture I realized that now I had to do something with three huge bags of tomatoes what the hell was I gonna do on a 95 degree day with all those tomatoes Canning in summer when you're eight months pregnant is just too much. And uh, I'm pretty sure I flounced on the couch and cried a little bit over that. Frankly, I don't remember what I did with the tomatoes. I bet I froze them or my husband made spaghetti sauce or something like that. All I remember is the little the little hissy fit I threw on the porch. Anyways, maybe that's TMI. I uh, feel for you if it's a late summer pregnancy. Um, let's see. I want to do some email again. This is a little bit different. Um, I want to, so remember last week when I read Amy's email, um, she was concerned about her doctor wanting to schedule a 37 week C-section and, um, well, she wrote back and I think her story is an important one to share. Um, there's just so much going on in Amy's life and in Amy's story. And it's just so reflective of, what decision-making choices, you know, all of the issues that you have to face to make some of your your best birth plans. Um, Let me refresh your memories on her situation. I'll go ahead and read just a little bit from her email last week. Uh, She writes, 
I am writing in hopes to get your opinion on my doctor's suggestion to schedule a C-section at 37 weeks. From your podcast on articles in Fit Pregnancy, I think I know your position on over-intervening and unnecessary surgery, so that's why I hope you can shed some light on the situation and help me make an informed decision. I'm currently 27 weeks along with my third pregnancy. My husband and I have a healthy three-year-old son, but we lost a daughter at 37 weeks. I trust my doctor's medical expertise, but also know there are so many beneficial reasons to keep babies in the womb for 40 weeks. I want to do the right thing for everyone's health, but most of all, I want this baby to make it safely into the world. Oh, yeah. So... My answer to Amy last week was that maybe she needed a C-section, but maybe she didn't, and that it was perfectly okay to make her birth plans later in her pregnancy. If she needs a C-section, we're good at doing them super, super fast. Um, But I also mentioned that everybody is afraid in this situation. Amy, her family, her doctor, nobody wants her to lose this baby. And so her doctor is doing the only thing he really can. He's making plans and trying to control the outcome in the best way he knows how. Um, But Amy's right. There is value in letting babies stay in the uterus longer than 37 weeks. All kinds of developmental finishing work happens at the tail end of a pregnancy. And when possible, we don't want to deprive babies of that time. However, there are always situations where the rules and best intentions don't apply. Sometimes you just have to go with the flow. And that's why I wanted to read Amy's email from this week. Hi, Jeannie. I listened to this week's podcast and you replied to my email today. I'm honored that you would answer my email on the show. That was really exciting. I hope your listeners can benefit from the conversation. Thank you so much for your advice. It's given me a lot to consider. I like how you said, surgery is not the cure for fear. I hope to make my decision without a fear bias. To clarify my situation, I have already had two C-sections, so my doctors have advised for another based on that. Our first baby was 10 days late when I was induced, and none of the induction methods would work. My cervix never dilated beyond 4 to 5 centimeters. Even after my water had finally broken, there was no progression of labor. After three days in the hospital, I regretfully consented to a cesarean. At that point, I would do anything just to get the baby out. In my second pregnancy, when we were told our daughter had passed, the doctors offered to induce labor again. I could not imagine having to go through the whole three-day process in that case, so on we went with another C-section. It seems inevitable that this baby will be delivered surgically, regardless of the date scheduled. I will take your advice and think long and hard about this and see how I feel when we get closer to the end. I'll be sure to keep you posted. Thanks again, Amy. Oh, Amy, thank you so much for writing back and for just being so generous with your story. Um, You know, now me and our listeners know a lot more about, you know, why Amy and her doctor are considering a third C-section and at 37 weeks. And Amy, honey, you've been through an awful lot. Seriously. You've had more birth experience and trauma than most women. And I really hope this next birth is smooth sailing for you. It seems to me from reading your emails that the decision to do a C-section is already one you're fairly okay with. You've been through a tough induction and labor and needed a C-section to deliver that baby and then another C-section to deliver your stillborn daughter. Now that this baby is on the way and there's so much hope and, yes, fear attached, let me tell you, I feel the exact same way. 
I'd feel hopeful for the best outcome for mom and baby and afraid that something truly horrible will happen like it did last time. And I think if I had the same labor and birth history, I might opt for a third C-section too rather than attempting a VBAC. I'm not positive about that, but I might. And that's perfectly fine. Amy, it's okay to go with the birth plan you know will make you, your husband, and family, and your provider feel most comfortable. And if that's a C-section, excellent. Do that. Feel good about it. Your other concern is about doing it at 37 weeks. Well, that's kind of an arbitrary date based on when we know most babies can live outside the uterus without any or many complications. 37-weekers do great most of the time, but it's also a date based on when your daughter died and everyone wants to spare you the worry that something like that could happen again. That is extremely unlikely, Um, but you've had lightning strike you and I think I would be afraid of it too. I think that if later on in your pregnancy, the 37-week date starts looking like a good option for delivery, well then excellent, do that and feel good about it. Again, 37-weekers generally do great. If you get to the end of your pregnancy and you and your baby are both doing really well and you feel about going for 38 weeks or 39 or full term, excellent, do that. I want you to feel good about your choices. I really don't think you can make a wrong choice here, Amy. Your circumstances are not what most women go through. However, however you choose to approach your birth, the odds are always in your favor that everything's going to turn out just fine. I want you to keep talking to your doctor about your thoughts and feelings in the weeks ahead. I want you to make sure that your doctor knows that you are an equal partner in the decisions you'll make about how and when your baby will be born. And then I want you to feel strong in your choices. Deep down, you absolutely know what's best for you and your baby. Uh, Keep your emails coming, guys. I really love them, and I think people really like hearing these stories. But I want to go ahead and shift gears. Um, I want to get today's guest on the line, and I want to talk about a subject that affects more women than we realize. Uh, Maternal mental health issues, pregnancy and postpartum depression and anxiety. We're talking more as a society about mental health issues and the stigma surrounding it, especially during pregnancy and the postpartum period, um, it's finally starting to lighten up, thank God. But there are still lots and lots and lots of women and families out there who aren't getting the help they need. Too many mothers are afraid to admit that they aren't 100% happy during the rosy, glowy first weeks and months of being a new mama. We still think we have to lay on the glitter and talk about that time in our life as, you know, all rainbows and magic because we're so in love with our babies and with being a new mom that nothing else matters. Uh Uh-huh, right. Ladies, we need to talk about it. Yes, there are roses and glitter and there are also rollicking hormones and a sore butt and leaky breasts and sleepless nights and anxieties about how to do everything and a radically new shift in your identity and worries about going back to work and the fatigue. Oh my God, the fatigue, maybe above all else. We need to talk about the whole story around being mothers. The truth that, yeah, there are rainbows, and yes, we're in love, and yes, being a mother is freaking great, but there are other feelings too, and those are also really normal, even when they're kind of extreme. 
So our guest today is a writer and a mother and well-versed in what I'm talking about here. So I'm going to get Adrienne Martini on the phone to tell us her story. Hello. Hi, Adrienne. It's Jeannie. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I am great. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, um... We were introduced by Sarah Bowenshay, who is my neighbor and right. was my guest on my very first podcast ever. Um, right. And you are a co-host for Another Mother Runner, correct? I am. All right. Uh, it seems everybody lives in your neighborhood. It's the place to be. Oh, yeah, yeah. We all live here. It's Portland. Right. <laughs> it's the best neighborhood in Portland. I remember, right. I remember many years ago, like, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago, there was one of those reviews the best cities in the country and then the best neighborhoods in that city right and it turned out that our neighborhood was at that moment in time the best neighborhood in oh wow the country wow and of course i i you know took that further that my block is probably the best <laughs> block. right <laughs> and my right. house you know Yes. Yeah. This particular section of the block is pretty darn awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Especially my side of the street. Yeah. Yeah. The other side, meh, but my side. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Adrian, let's start off with you telling us who you are and what you do. Um, Okay. My name is Adrian Martini. And yes, that is my real last name. I get asked that a lot. It's a Um, good one. It is a great one. Uh, I did not take my husband's name when we got married because, I mean, would you give up the last name Martini? I don't think any sensible person would. No, no, they wouldn't. No. But now I'm kind of curious what your husband's last name is. (laughs) My husband's last name is Seeger, like Bob Seeger or Pete Seeger, but spelled differently. So, um, I think you made a wise choice. I think I did too. He yeah. had actually thought about taking my last name for a while, but the paperwork was just such a nightmare that we let that go. <laughs> um, okay. So let's see. What do I do? Um, I do a lot of things. I have two kids. Uh, one just is 14 or will be 14 by the time anybody else hears this. Um, and one who's 11 I currently uh, write and edit the alumni magazine for the State University of New York at Oneonta. It's part of the state university system here. Um, But I am also a freelance writer, and I write for Another Mother Runner. Um, I've written for all kinds of publications. I wrote about uh, bottled water and municipal water for Cooking Light. Mm -hmm. I write for a science fiction, the uh, book genre, uh, trade magazine. Yes, there is such wow. a thing. Yeah, right? You're eclectic. Uh, I am. I am. Um, I, let's see, I've written two books. One is called Sweater Quest, and it's about knitting a very complicated sweater. Ooh. But Yes, right? But it's really about any big project that you decide to take on. Uh-huh. Um, and the other one is called Hillbilly Gothic, a memoir of madness and motherhood, which I suspect is why you're calling me. Yeah. Yeah. Primarily (laughs) because it's called Hillbilly Gothic. Yes. But before we start talking about that book, um, let me just ask you a few other questions. So you have an 11 year old and a 14 year old. Yep. 
Are they boys or girls? Uh, the 11-year-old's a boy and the 14-year-old's a girl. All right. Yes. How's it One going? How's it going? Um, Mostly good, I have to say. Um, I seem to do better personally once they're kind of above the age of six or seven. Uh-huh. That whole toddlerhood, you know, it's all id and no higher logic. Right. Um, I find that very, very unnerving. Yeah. Um, I'm a fan of logic myself. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love it. And yeah. words, words are great. I, I know. Uh, a nice vocabulary yeah. will take you far. It really will. Um, I have to say with my daughter, kind of like 12 into 13, that was that was rough. That was yeah. pretty rough. Yeah. Um, so far, though, and I'm knocking wood, um, we're doing pretty good. Oh, good. Um, which isn't to say... I mean, you know, she's a teenager, but so. But it is their job as teenagers to yes, be a little rough and rocky. Yep. Yeah. Yep. But yeah. all things considered, doing pretty good. I have a theory as to why 12 and 13 are so difficult for so many families. And it's it's simple. It's those first toxic whiffs of estrogen. Yes. <laughs> no, I'm 100% behind that. And I have to say that, and she'll kill me if she ever hears this, um, when she actually started her period, uh-huh. uh, and that's really kind of all sorted itself out, that's when everything kind of settled down again, and mm-hmm. it was pretty great. So yeah. your mileage vary, but that was our experience. Yeah. Hormones, man. Hormones. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So tell me a little bit about running, and then I want to talk about knitting, and then we're going to talk about the book. Okay. So you, if you are a writer for Another Mother Runner and a co-host for the podcast, then I suspect you're a different kind of runner than I am. (laughs) I'm not so sure about that. I think Um, you might be a badass mother runner. Uh, well, yes, we are all badass mother runners. Any mother who runs is a badass. It's just automatic. I don't know about uh, that. I uh, really don't. I'm I'm struggling with that. I am uh, still identifying as a slogger. Oh, it, even badass is slog. I mean, okay. some runs are just, you know, sometimes it's just a slog. That's just the way it goes. Um, it's, it's taken me so long to reach my meager mileage that I mm-hmm. really, I don't, I can't see it in my mind yet at a point where I would call myself a runner? Mm. I think, uh, so my history with running, I didn't start until I was, I think I was 40. It was right around there. I was either 40 or 41. Um, and I'm currently 45. So I have not been running all that long. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started mostly because I saw a picture of myself uh, and just kind of looked at it and went, who is that incredibly fat lady? And suddenly realized, oh, hey, that's me. Oh, did you really not recognize yourself? Um, I didn't. Or I didn't recognize my shape. I'm like, well, that's my coat and that's my hair. Uh, um, so, oh, and you can probably hear my dog. That's okay. I have dogs too. <laughs> okay. Um, and I realized that I kept saying, well, eventually I'll lose the baby weight. And I realized he was six. So yeah. I was like, yeah, no, I have to, I have to do something. And I just felt terrible, mm-hmm. uh, just physically not comfortable with myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I and understand so I start- that feeling. I mean, yes. you, you run, um, part, part of your running you do um, to sponsor Every Mother Counts, right? I do. Uh, well, 
I am doing it for the New York City Marathon, okay. which would be my first and only marathon. So you um, know the crowd that I hang out with. I do. I have heard of the crowd you hang out with. Yes. Oh my yes. God, they're so intimidating. They are. No, I am not. I'm not a fast runner. Um, and I'm really doing it. I really want to do just that marathon because uh-huh. I live so close to New York City, and it's my it's a city that I dearly, dearly love. Uh-huh. And the idea of running through all of the boroughs and all of the crowd support. Um, and I watch it on TV every year and I'm like, I really want to do that. And I realize that I'm just, you know, I'm never going to magically uh, turn into Kara Goucher, who's a, a great. I know. Yeah, she's amazing. She is amazing. I'm never going to wake up one morning and go, yes, this is the morning that I run the marathon. Um, <laughs> and I'm just going to have to do it. And it's like anything else. It's like big knitting projects, too. You just you do it one step at a time. You can't you can't say, well, I can't run 26 miles. It's like, well, no, I can't today but Mm -hmm. i suspect by the time i'm done if i manage to keep myself in one piece um i will be able to it might not be pretty certainly won't be fast but i'll finish it i like to say i can i can run a marathon i run run several every year yes each marathon (laughs) takes me two weeks and i break it up into eight sessions and that's okay you know you're (laughs) out there you're moving around you're breaking a sweat and that's really the important part yeah yeah so let's talk a little bit about knitting how long have you been knitting oh i have been knitting for a lot longer than i've been running um unfortunately knitting is not terribly aerobic so uh unless you're really really a fast knitter um Or, or if you're using you know those arm knitters Yes. Well, I, yeah, I'm sure they're getting some, you know, strength training and a little bit of aerobic work. Yeah. Um, I've been knitting. I started knitting shortly after my daughter was born. So, so 13, 14 years. Yeah. Um, and I started knitting for a variety of reasons, but one of them was my daughter did not want to sleep anywhere that was not my body. Uh-huh. Um, Smart girl. <laughs> yes. Yes. I get it. <clears throat> Um, so I would kind of just plunk her in my lap with kind of her feet against my belly and her her head up by my knees, um, and knit hats because they were small enough that like it wouldn't dangle all over her. Mm -hmm. And I could just sit there and knit and knit and knit and have something to do while she napped. Yeah. That's brilliant. I'm, I'm a new, a fairly new knitter, but Mm I, um, uh. I, I find it so profound. I mean, I'm, I'm at the point where I haven't ever made a sweater yet, but I can make a shawl and I can make a scarf and I made, I made a hat and it, um, ended up looking a little bit like a condom, but that's That's okay. okay. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I'm a fan of condoms. Yes. Um, (laughs) Especially if you're done with the whole baby thing. (laughs) Oh, so done. So done. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. Done. Yeah. Um, anyways, yeah, it's fun. It's fun. It's kind of like a big head condom, right? Sort of like that. Yeah. 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 I have one baby that, or she's a grown ass woman now who is <laughs> the result of a condom. Oh dear. Yeah. yeah. Well, anyways, <laughs> let's talk about Hillbilly Gothic. And if, okay. if it's okay, I'd like to read the description of the book. Sure. Um, Hillbilly Gothic. My family has a grand tradition. After a woman gives birth, she goes mad. I thought that I would be the one to escape. 
So begins Adrienne Martini's candid, compelling, and darkly humorous story of her family's and her own experiences with depression and postpartum syndrome. Illuminating depression from the inside, Martini delves unflinchingly into her own breakdown and institutionalization and traces the multi-generational course of this devastating problem. Whew. Moving back and forth between characters and situations, she vividly portrays the isolation, geographical and metaphorical, of the Appalachia of her forebears and the western Pennsylvania region where she grew up. Um, She also weaves in the stories of other women, both contemporary and historic, who have dealt with postpartum depression in all its guises, from fleeting baby blues to full-blown psychosis. Serious as her subject is, Martini's narrative is like getting the best Christmas gift ever. But, oh no, I I skipped something. Uh Uh-oh. Martini's narrative is unfailingly engaging and filled with witty, wry observations in the complications of new motherhood. It's like getting the best Christmas gift ever, but Santa decided to kick the crap out of you before you unwrapped it. (laughs) Oh my gosh, where do we start? Where do we start? Uh, I'll let you start because there's a lot to unpack there. There really is. So, all right, let's go with Hillbilly Gothic first. Tell me about the title. Um, My family, um, my mother's family is from West Virginia, which has a whole... Oh, there's so many stereotypes about West Virginia. Um, And I grew up in Pittsburgh, which is not that far from West Virginia, and another one of the Appalachian um, cities, Rust Belt City. Um, And the thing with both of those regions are, I don't know if you've traveled out. out I haven't been there. Into that part of the country. No, Um, I haven't. Things you get these pockets, even in a giant city like Pittsburgh, um, all of the neighborhoods are still relatively isolated because the geography is so isolated or isolating Mm -hmm. um, uh, because there's mountains and rivers and all kinds of stuff in the way. Um, So there's a sense that every, you know, when you grow up in Pittsburgh, there's a sense that you've grown up in that city, but really everybody identifies with a little small pocket of that city they grew up in. Um, so there's, and then when I had my daughter, it was in Knoxville, Tennessee, which is in Eastern Tennessee, which is, um, you know, when you think of Memphis and Nashville, you think of kind of great big cities sure. that are exciting and full of life. Knoxville is not that city. It's not Knoxville. that city. <laughs> it's, it's not a great. It's not Nashville. <laughs> it's not Nashville. Huh? Surprisingly. Huh. Yeah, it is the uh, cradle of bluegrass, but not the cradle of music. Okay. Um, it's very much an Appalachian city. It's at the, the you can go 10, 15 minutes and you're in the Smoky Mountain National Park. Um, it's of Dollywood um, and all that Dollywood, the theme park devoted to Dolly Parton. Mm-hmm. Um, because she grew up in that area as well. Dirt poor, so poor. Um, it, and kind of all of that influences the way that you see uh, the world. Is especially it still when you're like that? Um, to some extent? or To some extent, yes. Um, I, and I was always kind of an outsider in Knoxville because I'm not, I didn't, um, I'm not a, a born and bred Southerner. Uh, 
So I was always going to be the Yankee interloper, um, which is also isolating in its own way. So this is the backdrop for your family's birth experiences. Yes. Um, And I didn't know about my family's birth experiences until I actually had my daughter, because as my mom put it, she's like, well, we didn't want to worry you. Hmm. I was like, oh, okay. well, it would have been nice to know this going in, you know, that this sort of thing could happen. Hmm. So um, uh, where to start? My my relationship with my mother has always been kind of fraught, um, uh, mostly because she I, is bipolar, has ang- pretty intense anxiety. Hmm. Um, and I went through my own kind of depression as a teenager but nobody really noticed it and I was a kid so I didn't you know I didn't notice it in myself you didn't Uh, know the difference no I mean and you don't because you know you grow up in the family that you grew up in and it's not until you get out that you're suddenly like oh wait you know not everybody else kind of sees their mom for about two seconds after they get home from work. And then she would just shut herself in her room and sob for the next eight hours. Like you see that as that's perfectly normal. That's how families behave. Wow. Really? You did you, as you were growing up, you didn't have any sense that that was really abnormal. Um, no, (laughs) no, I really, that's what mothers did. That's what mothers do. Um, and when they weren't, when she wasn't in there, when she wasn't kind of in a, a depressive mode, um, we would just fight. I mean, and fight and fight and fight and fight. Um, it, it reached a point, too, when I was finally old enough to drive. I kind of just moved out um, and lived with at my dad's for, you know, four or five months mm-hmm. um, just because it had become so oppressive. Wow. Yeah. That's a heck of an adolescence and teen, <laughs> teen life. Yes. Yeah. And it wasn't until I I was in therapy and described it and somebody said, wow, that must have been really lonely. And it, I had never put those two things together until somebody else said it. Hmm. Um, and I suddenly went, yeah, no, you're right. That was, it was, wow. Yes, you hmm. are correct. Hmm. Um, and then it, you know, then it all started to make a lot more sense. Um so you had your daughter mm-hmm. and you, you didn't realize that, I mean, you, had you had any treatment for depression prior to pregnancy? I had. Okay. Uh, so you kind of knew, you knew that you had some fragility there. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, which was kind of a double-edged sword because when things started to, um, when I felt my mood kind of slipping, what I thought was, well, this will stabilize, right? Because I know about how bad it can get. Mm-hmm. And that's manageable. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'll start, and I was still trying to breastfeed. And I was, I was, you know, you're so, it, it was so important to me to do this mothering thing right, mm-hmm. or what I perceived as right, um, that I you know, the idea of not breastfeeding so that I could preserve things like sleeping and, you know, um, not having a child on me 24 hours a day, um, 
never occurred to me because that's wrong, right? You know, right. you have to do Mothers with this. give it all, all the time. Yes. Right. Um, and they Which, never say For my listeners out there, that's bullshit. Yes. <laughs> Complete bullshit. Yeah. 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 Uh, so how but, old was your daughter before, how old she, was she when you started to, as you put it, see your mood slip? Right. Um, well, it started to slip like probably a week in, mm -hmm. um, it really started to slip, uh, probably about 10 days in because then I stopped sleeping, mm -hmm. um, for a variety of reasons. Um, and breastfeeding was not going well. And we, tr you know, I had a lactation consultant and we did this whole thing and I was waking up every two hours to try and get something into her, um, and I just wouldn't go back to sleep. Right. So I think I went 48 hours without sleeping at all. Um, and, you know, sleep deprivation alone can send you off in some really remarkable direction. Yeah. yeah. I, I, in my book, Common Sense Pregnancy, I write a little thing about, um, you know, that hypervigilance of brand new yes. motherhood. And yes. there was... Um, a, I think that it was, I don't know, three or four days after my daughter was born. And I, I didn't sleep for that entire right. time since she was yeah. born. And I remember I was sitting in the rocking chair in her bedroom, just bone weary, but thinking I was fine and seeing flying horses coming in right. her window. Right. And in right. my mind, it was like, wow, there sure are a lot of horses. Yes. I wonder what yeah. happens when they land. Uh-huh. And at that point, I realized, oh, you are messed up. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you should close your eyes for a minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And when I finally yeah. got some sleep, that was that was the extent of my, right, you know, disruption. Right. Yeah. So that I started to see, we had a ceiling fan in our, our bedroom, and it started to look like a giant spider up on the ceiling. Oh, scary. Yeah. Yeah. My hallucinations were not you know, calm, gentle, uh, flying horses. No. It was, uh, it yeah. got pretty weird there. Um, I didn't, then I stopped eating, um, because why not? Right. Um, uh, and that's really when things started to go off the rails. Um, and I knew, you know, there's a rational part of your, or there was for me a rational part of my brain that went, yeah, this is not good. Yeah. You are in a situation that is not good. Yeah. Um, and my husband was, you know, towards the end there, he's like, yeah, this is not good, but I don't know what to do. Because mm -hmm. um, also sometimes with mental illness, the, the person who is mentally ill gets pretty good at covering it up. Yeah. Um, and, and that's survival. Because, oh, yeah. you know, there's so much stigma and we have yes. so much history around mistreatment of the mentally ill. And you're a mom. What the heck's right. going to happen if you're not okay? Right. Yeah. Um, and I was decidedly not okay. Um, so the kind of the day that it all came to a head, um, I was standing in the shower because my husband was home. Um, so I decided I would get a shower. That seemed like a good thing to do. And as I was standing in there, I was envisioning, I was like putting together the plan of how I would kill myself. Mm. Um, and there are, you know, I was thinking about the knives in the kitchen. And I was like, yeah, that'd probably be a good idea. I'll do it in the bathroom so I don't make a mess because, you know, it's important not to make a mess. Right. You're considerate. Uh, I am. I am. Not to mention what I was about to do to somebody's entire, you know, the mess entire I was about life. to make my family. Yes. Um, 
but it seemed very logical at the time. Uh, and my husband later said, you know, when you got out of the shower, you were just completely vacant. Like there was nobody in there at all. Um, and he's like, that's when I really started, you know, I went from concerned to terrified. Um, so he suggested I call my OB. Uh, and that seemed like a good idea. So I called her and she pretty much said, okay, here's what you're going to do. You're going to take the baby. Um, the baby's going to go with your husband. You are going to get yourself to the ER, uh, and then we'll take it from there. And I said, okay. Uh, by then, my husband had left for work, because I assured him that everything was going to be just fine. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. Um, I thought, okay. So I put my daughter in her car seat, put the car seat in the car, drove down to where he was working. Um, he came down and met me, um, and he's like, I'm going to run. Maddie, who's our daughter, I'm going to run her up. The women in the office are going to keep an eye on her. They have had many babies. They know how to do this. Um, and then I'm going to go with you to the ER. And I said, well, no, that was not the plan. The plan was that the doctor gave me, you are to take the baby. I am to go to the ER. We will not deviate from the plan. Right. Um, Which I bet you were actually kind of hanging on to that plan. Oh, that was all I had at yeah. that point. I yeah. have this plan and I will do that. Yeah. Um, and don't, I had, don't throw in variables like strangers no, taking care no, of my baby. No, there will be no variables. There's, you know, we're doing this. Um, and I had forgotten to mention to you that for the previous 12 hours, I was just sobbing. Mm. Like, and I couldn't even control it anymore. I was just sobbing the entire time. Um, did it feel like anxiety or did it feel like nothing? It felt like nothing. Ugh. Um, it wasn't even, I couldn't even work up anxiety. I mean, I just, I didn't care anymore. Wow. Uh, so I got back in the car uh, and realized that there was zero gas in my car. I was like, well, that was not in the plan, but this is something I can deal with. So I'm, I'm standing at a gas station, putting gas in my car, sobbing, uh, wearing, still wearing maternity clothes because, you know, two weeks after you have a baby, your body has not just snapped right back. No, it certainly hasn't. Um, filling the car with gas. Uh, getting all kinds of looks from all of the other people filling their cars with gas. Uh, got to the emergency room, parked the car, kind of walked in and just took my ID and my insurance card, kind of flung it at somebody at the front desk. And I was like, okay, done. I am done. I am not capable of making any more decisions. I fulfilled my part of the plan. It is now up to somebody else. Um, and then I spent the next five or six days on a like a locked uh psych floor wow so yeah and what did they do for you there um there was group therapy which um on a real psych floor you have all kinds of different um illnesses manifesting themselves so you know it I realized that when it, I started to realize how just absurd the whole situation was, watching them try and do group therapy with, you know, somebody who's hearing voices and me who's sitting in the corner and crying and, um, you know, somebody who really can't quite follow the thread of any conversation. Um, it, it just, you know, when that's, when you start to realize how absurd that is, it's like, okay, I must be getting better because... I can see this from another angle other than my own misery. Yeah. Um, so there was some group stuff. I think really for me, it wound up being a safe 
holding place mm -hmm. while they hit it, they pushed as many meds on me uh, as they could. Right. And then, of uh, course, it takes a little time for many yes. psych medications to kick in. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and it was just kind of a place to wait for that to kind of clear. Um, they, one of the greatest things they did was um, essentially uh, chemically knocked me out, mm -hmm. gave me some sleeping pill I don't remember anymore. But you and slept. So I, but I slept and I got a full like good night's sleep. Um, and it's amazing just even how much good that did. Yeah. Um, it's amazing. I, oh, it's, I mean, it's just, it's remarkable how wonderful sleep is. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, got started eating again and, you know, taking care of myself as an actual human person. Mm -hmm. Um. And, you know, talking to people was great, um, but I really think just trying to find some stability um, just physically mm -hmm. was immense, just immense. Safety, physical safety. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So did it happen again when you had your son? My son? Um, no. Well, yes and no. Uh, so... We knew that if we had one baby that we really wanted to have two because um, I'm an only child and, you know, it has its, there are upsides to being an only child, but there mm -hmm. are also downsides and there are downsides to having siblings as well. But um, we always wanted two. We mm -hmm. thought about three and then we had two and we're like, no, two's good. Yeah. Two's good. We'll yeah. stop here. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, we had moved in the meantime to where we are now. Um, and there's a big difference between having babies in, uh, Knoxville, Tennessee and having them up here. Um, there's just a different approach. Better well, resources. Better resources. Um, it's just a different, different animal. Yeah. Uh, the culture of care is, is, is completely just, different. Yeah. Um, yeah. when I had, you know, and it also had been four or five years. Um, no, it hadn't actually. It's, they're three years apart. Um, so what I did is I had gotten all of my files from having Maddie because I'd been working on this book. So I had access to all of them, um, made a thousand photocopies and brought them into my OB, um, uh, started talking to her. Well, she was my gynecologist at that point, but uh, started talking to her about having another baby and gave her this whole big file. I said, I don't want to do this again. Um, and she kind of flipped through it and she said, yeah, I, I think that's something that we can manage. Yeah. Um, and when it started to feel, you know, about a week to 10 days after he'd been born, um, and I was just, you know, sitting on the couch, just, you know, kind of rocking and talking to him and realizing that tears are just streaming down my face. Mm. Uh, I was like, yeah, I need to call someone. Um, so I called her and we kind of adjusted meds. Mm. Um, and that was a huge help, mm. uh, especially knowing that it could happen. Mm-hmm. Um, you weren't so blindsided. No. And it was completely, I was completely blindsided the first time. Did yeah. not see it coming. So when you think about, you know, what other women in your family have been through, mm -hmm. how do you compare their experiences with your own? Um, it's a, it's a continuum. Um, my cousin had full blown, uh, postpartum psychosis. Um, and that's where, you know, you 
start hearing voices and um yeah they're not telling you to do sane things right um and you really start to lose all touch with reality Mm -hmm. um so you know there's kind of that extreme me um and then you know just kind of mild baby blues um but there's other mental illness on both sides of the family that it's hard to say if it manifested when those women became mothers or if it was just kind of that didn't, you know, that it was always there and that certainly didn't help the situation. That because was the, our, the crisis that pushed it over. Right. Um, <clears throat> because our approach as a culture to mental health, I mean, it's still evolving, but it has changed so much even from when my mother was having babies. Mm-hmm. Um, cause it was something that you just did not discuss 40 years ago. No, people didn't talk about it much. Oh, I no. Mean, there was some, I was, oh, 40 years ago, I was in Southern California, which is, you know, sort of a hotbed for people are into psychology there. So there right. was a little bit more, uh, awareness, right. but nothing like what we see. No, no, no not at all. Um, mm-hmm. Well, and also, too, 40 years ago, there wasn't much you could do about it. Um, the drugs that they had were, I mean, it was like killing a fly with a sledgehammer. I was I mean, just going to say the same yeah. thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, great. So you have postpartum depression. Now what? You know, yeah. there just weren't a whole lot of a whole lot of options then. Right. right. So. Yeah. And, but, you know, I also wonder if. You know, there's so many different factors that can go into mental health or mental illness. And I wonder if, you know, some of the sociological factors that women are experiencing as new mothers today are contributing. You know, maybe things were so different um, 40 years ago or, you know, 50, 60, 100 years ago for women that there actually were fewer incidences. I don't know, but, I, you know, I like to ponder. I'm a ponderer. (laughs) um i think having a see when i had my daughter we had no extended family within even probably six or eight hours drive so it was really just us nobody to Um, hand the baby off to when you needed to take a shower or when you were at wit's end yes um and you know we cobbled together um kind of a created family but it, it was not the same kind of having a baby and being surrounded by aunties and cousins and right. um, mothers and grandmothers. Um, so, I, you know, that certainly didn't help. Um, I don't know. I don't have an answer for that. Yeah, I, think, I don't either. I bet I that part, there's data somewhere, but I bet it's not very good. It's not. Um, yeah. And part of the problem is, too, that... Um, before, you know, 20, 30 years ago, a lot of times when, when a woman would uh, develop a, a mental illness, uh, she'd just kind of wander away. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, you know, systems would just evolve in the family to kind of cover it up or work, you know, work around it. And you just didn't hear about it that much. Can you imagine um, just wandering away? I mean, you still hear about it every now and again. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just um, that, wander my, away. My great-grandmother wandered away. She just, you know, she gave her kids to, I think, a sister and just 
You know, she's like, nope, I'm out of here. Peace out. Yeah. Um, did she come back? She did as a much older woman. So, wow. you know, she's gone for 10 or 15 years. And wow. when she came back, she was also, um, she didn't live much longer after that because she was uh, an alcoholic. Oh. So, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, of course, I think, well, yeah, she was in so much pain that self-medication would make sense. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It makes yeah. total sense. Yeah. Oh, my God. My heart breaks for her. Yeah. And there are so many women who are going through this or are worried about this or know somebody right now that probably are frightened and aren't sure oh, yeah. what their resources are. Yeah. Um, but, but there's kind of an upside of this family history is that there is some comparison. You know, if it had been your grandmother today, she wouldn't have had to have wandered mm -mm. off and self-medicated because there's right. really good medications out there and there's really there's, good and effective therapies. Yes. Yes. Yeah. There's so many more options out there now. Yeah. yeah. Um, Thank God. Yes. Yeah. Um, and it's something that... Um, it's not a death sentence. I mean, it's, you know, it's something that you're always aware of. Mm -hmm. um, but it's something that you can also work through. Um, and, you know, saying like, come out on top of it or emerge victorious. That's really not what happens. Yeah, but you suddenly nonsense. realize, yeah, but you realize that, oh, wait, there's this whole big, beautiful life out here. Um, and I'd really like to be around for it. Mm -hmm. And that alone is a huge, um, you know, game changer. So do you have any suggestions for improving new motherhood for women? Um, uh, yeah, <laughs> lots of them. Okay. Now I have to focus. Uh, give me a few one, of them. A few of them. Um, don't be quiet. If you are starting to feel like this is not okay, I am not okay, um, say something. Say something to everyone who will listen to you say something. Mm -hmm. Call your doctor. Uh, tell all of the people involved in your life, I am not okay. Mm -hmm. um, and you'll, you know, one of them should be able to help you out. There are... Um, there's a group started by a woman named Catherine Stone. Uh, she postpartum, oh, I can't remember the end of it, um, but I can send a link to you. Okay, um, sounds good. But it's a great resource, and she has all of the resources in pretty much every state and a lot of um, other countries as well. Um, call someone. Mm -hmm. Do not just sit there and go, no, no, it'll pass, I'm overreacting, because you know, even if you are overreacting, tell someone, let them decide if you're overreacting. Yeah. Um, because you start to lose your ability to gauge um, what's normal behavior. Yeah. Uh, and I think that, it, you know, probably organizational skills, priority setting, that all goes yes. out the window. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You start to really have no ability to care for yourself, much less I've had else. I've had women tell me that you know, their, their biggest priority, their number one most important thing was that they were able to continue breastfeeding. That was right. more important to them than anything else. Yes. And then, yeah, and it was for me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, cause that's like our hallmark for perfection in motherhood. And yet, yes, you're not going to be able to breastfeed yeah. if you don't make it. 
you know, you're not going to be able to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you have to be here. You yeah. Just, you have to one. be here. You have to you be have present. To be, yeah. yeah. Um, and you have to be really present, not kind of the shell of a person who. Um, Goes in the bedroom and cries for eight hours. Yeah. 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 You have to be here. Um, yeah. If you're not sleeping, find ways to either, you know, if you're not sleeping because you can't find time to sleep, well, maybe you should make some time to sleep. Other people are perfectly capable of keeping a newborn alive. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're not sleeping because you simply physically cannot sleep, that's one of those things that you should mention to somebody. Yeah. Somebody should um, know about that. Somebody should know about that. Before uh, the flying if, horses come in the window. Yes. Or the giant spiders. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you're not eating, that's not a good sign. Uh, you should probably tell somebody about that. Yeah. So, yeah. So yeah. that's the first uh, And if step. you start having any suicidal uh, ideation at all, yeah, that, that's not good. That's really not good. Go to your ER. So your so, first step yeah. is to tell somebody, I need some help. And then yes. your next step is to get to the ER. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Step one, here, you take this baby. Step yeah. two, I'm going to the ER. And then yeah. you fling your license and your insurance yes. card at them and you've done it <laughs> yes. and they will fix you. Yes. Yeah. Well, they may not fix you, but they'll at least put you where you can be safe. Yeah. Yeah. So they can really get figured it all out. So. Well, I really appreciate your telling the story and it sounds like you've been telling the story for 14 years now. And yes. that is a service that's going to help <laughs> us evolve in our experiences of motherhood in our, um, in reducing stigma around mental illness. I mean, it's an important service and I, I am grateful that you are talking about it. Thank you. So I have one more question for you that I ask everybody. Okay. You can be as simple or profound as you'd like. And the question Mm -hmm. is this, where are you in your life as a mom? Oh, wow. Um, I am feeling like it, I can see sort of the next 10 years and thinking that it might all turn out okay. (laughs) Yeah. That's where I am. Yeah. I could be horribly wrong, um, but I think it's going to be all right. Well, I have kids that are significantly older than yours. And I am, so I'm on the other side of that 10 years. Right. Yeah. It's going to be just fine. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. It's going to be just fine. Yeah. And if you've got an 11 year old and a 14 year old and you can say that now, you're ahead of the curve. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, my son, I'm, you know, he's a goober. So we'll see how that works out, but I think he's going to be all right. So. Well, good. Well, Adrian, this has been really a fun conversation, and I I expect we're going to have more to talk about down the road. Oh, great. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, you're more than welcome. Mama said there'll be days like this. There'll be days like this. Mama said. Mama said. Today's guest was Adrian Martini. You can learn more about Adrian at martinimade.com. Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting, the podcast, is produced by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures Studios in Portland, Oregon. We are still looking for sponsors and donations, y'all, to keep this conversation flowing. 
So, head on over to genefaulkner.com or email me, tweet me, just hit me up, gene at genefaulkner.com. And go buy the book, will ya? It's in stores all over the place. Seriously, it'll do you good. Till next week, everybody. We'll talk again soon. Yeah.